I spoke of your conduct to me on three successive days three years ago, did I not? I was trying to finish my last play at Worthing by myself. The two visits you had paid me had ended. You suddenly appeared a third time, bringing with you a companion who you actually proposed should stay in my house. I, you must admit now quite properly, absolutely declined. I entertained you, of course. I had no option in the matter. But elsewhere, not in my own home. The next day, Monday, your companion returned to the duties of his profession, and you stayed with me. Bored with Worthing, and still more, I have no doubt, with my fruitless efforts to concentrate my attention on my play, the only thing that really interested me at the moment, you insist on being taken to the Grand Hotel at Brighton. The night we arrive, you fall ill, with that dreadful low fever that is foolishly called the influenza, your second, if not your third, attack. I need not remind you how I waited on you and tended you, not merely with every luxury of fruit, flowers, presents, books, and the like that money can procure, but with that affection, tenderness, and love that whatever you may think is not to be procured for money. Except for an hour's walk in the morning, an hour's drive in the afternoon, I never left the hotel. I got special grapes from London for you, as you did not care for those the hotel supplied, invented things to please you, remained either with you or in the room next to yours, sat with you every evening to quiet or amuse you. After four or five days you recover, and I take lodgings in order to try to finish my play. You, of course, accompany me. The morning after the day on which we were installed, I feel extremely ill. You have to go to London on business, but promise to return in the afternoon. In London you meet a friend, and do not come back to Brighton till late on the next day, by which time I am in a terrible fever, and the doctor finds I have caught the influenza from you. Nothing could have been more uncomfortable for anyone ill than the lodgings turn out to be. My sitting-room is on the first floor, my bedroom on the third. There is no man-servant to wait on one, not even anyone to send out on a message or to get what the doctor orders. But you are there. I feel no alarm. The next two days you leave me entirely alone, without care, without attendance, without anything. It was not a question of grapes, flowers, and charming gifts. It was a question of mere necessaries. I could not even get the milk the doctor had ordered me. Lemonade was pronounced an impossibility. And when I begged you to procure a book at the booksellers, or if they had not got whatever I had fixed on to choose something else, you never even take the trouble to go there. And when I was left all day without anything to read in consequence, you calmly tell me that you bought me the book, and that they promised to send it down, a statement which I found by chance afterwards to have been entirely untrue from beginning to end. All the while you are, of course, living at my expense, driving about, dining at the Grand Hotel, and indeed only appearing in my room for money. On the Saturday night, you, having left me completely unattended and alone since the morning... I asked you to come back after dinner and sit with me for a little. With irritable voice and ungracious manner, you promised to do so. I wait till eleven o'clock and you never appear. I then left a note for you in your room, just reminding you of the promise you had made me and how you had kept it. At three in the morning, unable to sleep and tortured with thirst, I made my way in the dark and cold down to the sitting room in the hopes of finding some water there. I found you. You fell on me with every hideous word an intemperate mood and undisciplined and untutored nature could suggest. By the terrible alchemy of egotism, you converted your remorse into rage. 
You accused me of selfishness in expecting you to be with me when I was ill, of standing between you and your amusements, of trying to deprive you of your pleasures. You told me, and I know it was quite true, that you would come back at midnight simply in order to change your dress clothes and go out again to where you hoped new pleasures were awaiting for you, but that by leaving for you a letter in which I had reminded you that you had neglected me the whole day and the whole evening, I had really robbed you of your desire for more enjoyments and diminished your actual capacity for fresh delight. I went back upstairs in disgust and remained sleepless till dawn, nor till long after dawn was I able to get anything to quench the thirst of the fever that was on me. At eleven o'clock you came into my room. In the previous scene I could not help observing that by my letter I had at any rate checked you in a night of more than usual excess. In the morning you were quite yourself. I waited, naturally, to hear what excuses you had to make, and in what way you were going to ask for the forgiveness that you knew in your heart was invariably waiting for you, no matter what you did. Your absolute trust that I would always forgive you, being the thing in you that I always really liked best, perhaps the best thing in you to like. So far from doing that, you began to repeat the same scene with renewed emphasis and more violent assertion. I told you at length to leave the room. You pretended to do so, but when I lifted up my head from the pillow in which I had buried it, you were still there, and with brutality of laughter and hysteria of rage, you moved suddenly towards me. A sense of horror came over me, for what exact reason I could not make out, but I got out of my bed at once, and barefooted and just as I was, made my way down the two flights of stairs to the sitting-room, which I did not leave till the owner of the lodgings, whom I had rung for, had assured me that you had left my bedroom and promised to remain within call in case of necessity. After an interval of an hour, during which time the doctor had come and found me, of course, in a state of absolute nervous prostration, as well as in a worse condition of fever than I had been at the outset, you returned silently for money, took what you could find on the dressing-table and mantelpiece, and left the house with your luggage. Need I tell you what I thought of you during the two lonely, wretched days of illness that followed? Is it necessary for me to state that I saw clearly that it would be a dishonour to myself to continue even an acquaintance with such a one as you had showed yourself to be? That I recognised that the ultimate moment had come, and recognised it as being really a great relief? And that I knew that for the future my art and life would be freer and better and more beautiful in every possible way? Ill as I was, I felt at ease. The fact that the separation was irrevocable gave me peace. By Tuesday the fever had left me, and for the first time I dined downstairs. Tuesday was my birthday. Amongst the telegrams and communications on my table was a letter in your handwriting. I opened it with a sense of sadness on me. I knew that the time had gone by when a pretty phrase, an expression of affection, a word of sorrow, would make me take you back. But I was entirely deceived. I had underrated you. The letter you sent to me on my birthday was an elaborate repetition of the two scenes set cunningly and carefully down in black and white. You mocked me with common jests. Your one satisfaction in the whole affair was, you said, that you retired to the Grand Hotel and entered your luncheon to my account before you left for town. You congratulated me on my prudence in leaving the sickbed on my sudden flight downstairs. It was an ugly moment for you, you said, uglier than you imagine. Ah, I felt it but too well. What it had really meant, I do not know. 
whether you had with you the pistol you had bought to try to frighten your father with, and that, thinking it to be unloaded, you had once fired off in a public restaurant in my company, whether your hand was moving towards a common dinner knife that by chance was lying on the table between us, whether, forgetting in your rage your low stature and inferior strength, you had thought of some specially personal insult or attack even as I lay ill there, I could not tell. I do not know to the present moment. All I know is that a feeling of utter horror had come over me, and that I had felt that unless I left the room at once and got away, you would have done or tried to do something that would have been, even to you, a source of lifelong shame. Only once before in my life had I experienced such a feeling of horror at any human being. It was when in my library at Tite Street, waving his small hands in the air in epileptic fury, your father, with his bully or his friend between us, had stood uttering every foul word his foul mind could think of and screaming the loathsome threats he afterwards with such cunning carried out. In the latter case, he, of course, was the one who had to leave the room first. I drove him out. In your case, I went. It was not the first time I had been obliged to save you from yourself. You concluded your letter by saying, When you are not on your pedestal, you are not interesting. The next time you are ill, I will go away at once. Ah, what coarseness of fibre does that reveal? What an entire lack of imagination! How callous, how common had the temperament by that time become! When you are not on your pedestal, you are not interesting. The next time you are ill, I will go away at once. How often have those words come back to me in the wretched solitary cell of the various prisons to which I have been sent? I have said them to myself over and over again, and seen in them, I hope unjustly, some of the secret of your strange silence. For you to write this to me, when the very illness and fever from which I was suffering I had caught from tending you, was of course revolting in its coarseness and crudity. But for any human being in the whole wide world to write thus to another would be a sin for which there is no pardon, were there any sin for which there is none. I confess that when I finished your letter I felt almost polluted, as if by associating with one of such a nature I had soiled and shamed my life irretrievably. I had, it is true, done so, but I was not to learn how fully till just six months later in life. I settled with myself to go back to London on the Friday and see Sir George Lewis privately, and request him to write to your father to state that I had determined never, under any circumstances, to allow you to enter my house, to sit at my board, to talk with me, walk with me, or anywhere and at any time to be my companion at all. This done, I would have written to you just to inform you of the course of action I had adopted. The reasons you would have inevitably have realised yourself. I had everything arranged on Thursday night, when on Friday morning, as I was sitting at breakfast before starting, I happened to open the newspaper and saw in it a telegram stating that your elder brother, the real head of the family, the heir to the title, the pillar of the house, had been found dead in a ditch with his gun lying discharged beside him. 
the horror of the circumstances of the tragedy, now known to have been an accident, but then stained with a darker suggestion, the pathos of the sudden death of one so loved by all who knew him, and almost on the eve, as it were, of his marriage, my idea of what your own sorrow would be or should be, my consciousness of the misery awaiting your mother at the loss of the one to whom she clung for comfort and joy in life, and who, as she told me once herself, had from the very day of his birth never caused her to shed a single tear, my consciousness of your own isolation, both your other brothers being out of Europe and you consequently the only one to whom your mother and sister could look, not merely for companionship in their sorrow, but also for those dreary responsibilities of dreadful detail that death always brings with it. The mere sense of the lacrimae rerum, of the tears of which the world is made, and of the sadness of all human things. Out of the confluence of these thoughts and emotions crowding into my brain came infinite pity for you and your family. My own griefs and bitternesses against you I forgot. What you had been to me in my sickness, I could not be to you in your bereavement. I telegraphed at once to you my deepest sympathy, and in the letter that followed invited you to come to my house as soon as you were able. I felt that to abandon you at that particular moment, and formally through a solicitor, would have been too terrible for you. On your return to town from the actual scene of the tragedy to which you had been summoned, you came at once to me very sweetly and very simply, in your suit of woe, and with your eyes dim with tears. You sought consolation and help as a child might seek it. I opened to you my house, my home, my heart. I made your sorrow mine also, that you might have help in bearing it. Never even by one word did I allude to your conduct towards me, to the revolting scenes and the revolting letter. Your grief, which was real, seemed to me to bring you nearer to me than you had ever been. The flowers you took from me to put on your brother's grave were to be a symbol not merely of the beauty of his life, but of the beauty that in all lives lies dormant and may be brought to light. The gods are strange. It is not our vices only they make instruments to scourge us. They bring us to ruin through what in us is good, gentle, humane, loving. But for my pity and affection for you and yours, I would not now be weeping in this terrible place. Of course, I discern in all our relations, not destiny merely, but doom. Doom that always walks swiftly, because she goes to the shedding of blood. Through your father, you come of a race, marriage with whom is horrible, friendship fatal, and that lays violent hands either on its own life or on the lives of others. In every little circumstance in which the ways of our lives met, in every point of great or seemingly trivial import in which you came to me for pleasure or for help, in the small chances, the slight accidents that look in their relation to life to be no more than the dust that dances in a beam or the leaf that flutters from a tree, ruin followed, like the echo of a bitter cry or the shadow that hunts with the beast of prey. Our friendship really begins with your begging me in a most pathetic and charming letter to assist you in a position appalling to anyone, 
doubly so to a young man at Oxford. I do so, and ultimately, through your using my name as your friend with Sir George Lewis, I began to lose his esteem and friendship, a friendship of fifteen years' standing. When I was deprived of his advice and help and regard, I was deprived of the one great safeguard of my life. You send me a very nice poem of the undergraduate school of verse for my approval. I reply by a letter of fantastic literary conceits. I compare you to Hylas or Hyacinth, Jonquil or Narcisse, or, or someone whom the great god of poetry favoured and honoured with his love. The letter is like a passage from one of Shakespeare's sonnets, transposed to a minor key. It can be understood only by those who had read the Symposium of Plato, or caught the spirit of a certain grave mood made beautiful for us in Greek marbles. It was, let me say frankly, the sort of letter I would, in a happy, if willful moment, have written to any graceful young man of either university who had sent me a poem of his own making, certain that he would have sufficient wit or culture to interpret rightly its fantastic phrases. Look at the history of that letter. It passes from you into the hands of a loathsome companion, from him to a gang of blackmailers. Copies of it are sent about London to my friends and to the manager of the theatre where my work is being performed. Every construction but the right one is put on it. Society is thrilled with the absurd rumours that I have had to pay a huge sum of money for having written an infamous letter to you. This forms the basis of your father's worst attack. I produce the original letter myself in court to show what it really is. It is denounced by your father's counsel as a revolting and insidious attempt to corrupt innocence. Ultimately, it forms part of a criminal charge. The Crown takes it up. The judge sums up on it with little learning and much morality. I go to prison for it at last. That is the result of writing you a charming letter.' 